is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles in today for Mike Simpson. Spring breakers and frequent flyers are back. I'm not personally going to be one of either of those, but they are back. And despite the pandemic being far from over, many Americans are letting their guards down. In my opinion, way too many Americans. And that's making some scientists fear that a fourth wave could be coming our way. And there's so much, by the way, confusion about, you know, are we in uh, a third wave? Have we finished the third wave? Are we about to get into a fourth wave? Is there going to be a fifth wave? Nobody knows what wave we're in. I think we're in the first wave, and it's just been waving a really long time. <laughs> yeah, just the, the endless wave. There's growing concern also, you know, of a new COVID variant, yet another one. There's an outbreak in the uh, uh, Bay Area, and it is linked to a virus strain that comes to us all the way, apparently, from India. Great, which means it'll be down in Los Angeles, it'll be in <laughs> Milwaukee, it'll be in... Everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. you know, in a grocery store near you, or possibly even a pharmacy chain. Pharmacy chain Walgreens is in hot water for not spacing out their COVID vaccine shots. You know, all the uh, ugly things happening during the pandemic, it is sparking parents to think about racism in the country and what is good for their kids. Sad that it took a pandemic for them to do that, yeah. but glad that they're finally getting around to thinking about that now. And up in Western Canada, the entire Vancouver Canucks team has been pulled from action from the Brazilian variant that has made some very young, healthy athletes very, very sick. And that's one of the variants that people are worried about. It's not very prevalent right now in the U.S., but, you know, that's the concern that... You know, it'll be another wave. As long as it's not the New York Rangers, you know, I'm, I'm okay. So uh, scientists, like we said, you know, they're still trying to figure out whether the U.S. is entering a fourth wave. Now, the bad news is there are some states experiencing an alarming rise in COVID cases. Uh, the good news, there are also a lot more vaccinated people, and that could hold down the numbers. Now, it's, it's no doubt that the pandemic is far from over. But do we have the discipline and do we have the patience to see it through to the end? Dr. George Rutherford is an epidemiologist and director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. So are we uh, about to go into a, another wave? And if we are, does it matter? Well, uh, it depends on what we means. If, if we means the United States, there already is evidence of a fourth wave uh, in Michigan, perhaps most uh, uh, most pronounced, uh, but also in the uh, kind of the around the New York area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut actually extends into Rhode Island and maybe as far south as Delaware. So there is stuff going on out here in the West, though, uh, there's no evidence yet of a, of a fourth wave. Um, but it's you know so hopefully this will stay regional, uh, and we won't uh, we won't see anything out here in in California. You know it's funny because um, it's probably not a surprise we see any kind of wave because we just had a holiday, and it's a holiday where people did gather, and I think more people gathered this holiday than before because of the uh, feeling of positivity that there's light at the end of the tunnel, people are getting vaccinated, so I think more people were willing to gather, uh, go to services, hang out with other people. So every time we've had a holiday like that, we have seen a surge afterwards. Whether a surge is turning into a wave, we don't know, but isn't it different this? 
this time in that people are getting vaccinated. Is that going to be like a a wall that might keep another surge or a wave from getting as bad as we might be afraid of? Yeah, I think that's absolutely a fair way to characterize it. We know that about 30% of pet people in California have gotten a single dose. If you look in in and around Los Angeles, there are parts of Los Angeles where there have been a lot of people infected and maybe as much as half of the popula- half of the adult population has naturally acquired immunity on top of the vaccine. So I think we have a fairly, you know, robust immunologic wall that can ward off some of this uh, uh, some of this stuff. Plus, we don't have a lot of penetration of this of this uh, British variant that seems to be at the heart of what's going on in in Michigan. You know, I I do wonder, and we've talked about this uh, on the show repeatedly, but it's worth, I guess, talking about it again, whether or not this whole wave metaphor was a good one to begin with, and if it doesn't really confuse people, uh, you know, because we keep talking about we had a wave, we're coming up on a wave, we might have a wave. I mean, this is a disease that is probably going to be endemic, right, if it isn't already. Uh, And it's going to be uh, operating at a certain level in this country, indeed in the world, for probably the foreseeable future, notwithstanding what wave we're in. I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell Southern Californians about the metaphor of waves, uh, but it's <laughs> it's used for epidemics. You talk about first and second waves of epidemics and then kind of gradual attenuation. So, I mean, maybe the language has gotten away from us uh, now, but it's I actually find it somewhat uh, somewhat useful um, uh, talking in terms of, of waves. It just seems to be understandable. But it's like the ocean. I mean, there's no final wave, right? There, the waves keep coming all day long. Um, and I would hope that where we're going to be with this is that we'll be able to keep this here in, in California, at least, we'll be able to keep this <clears throat> at a kind of a low endemic state, and it'll become part of the differential diagnosis of viral pneumonia. Um, and we see tens of cases a year, possibly. Now, that's the best case scenario, um, and but it's really going to be heavily dependent on what how many people we can vaccinate and how well the vaccines match up against these in these variants that will inevitably come. All right. Thank you very much. That is uh, Dr. George Rutherford, epidemiologist and director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health at UC San Francisco's School of Medicine. We may have yet another mutant COVID strain. Here we go again. This one may be coming all the way from India, which is in the middle of an explosion there of COVID cases. Now that strain, it has officially put down roots here in California. It has been called the double mutant strain. Oh, great. So first we had like single mutants. Now we've got double mutants. Sounds like a bad movie with Vincent Price. (laughs) The double mutants from India. But the first case is confirmed up in the uh, Bay Area. Dr. Kartik Chandran is a virologist and microbiologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Uh, So, you know, in our last segment, we were talking with another doctor about whether or not we're getting too hung up on what wave we're in, whether we're in the third wave going into the fourth or the fourth wave. Mm -hmm. I I now wonder also if we're getting perhaps a little bit too hung up on uh, mutations or variants, uh, which all viruses do. Right. Uh, Do they do they have as much importance to the public as perhaps they do to experts such as yourself? Um, I, I don't really think so from a practical standpoint. Um, the, you know, there are concerns with increased transmissibility of some of the variants, and there's some evidence that some of them may cause worse disease. But at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to get any kind of COVID. So as a person, you know, 
that's sort of deciding what to do for oneself and one's family uh, and at one's place of work. I think you take all of the standard precautions that we've all been taking and, and you know, you don't assume this is over because we're starting to roll out the vaccines. I mean, you know, we really need to keep doing that. It's going to be a while before we get the kind of immunity we need um, to really be well protected. So, so from the standpoint of being a public, I wouldn't, you know, be alarmed about this or do anything out of the ordinary. I would just continue to take the precautions and then try to get vaccinated, you know, as soon as possible. You know, viruses mutate. That's what they do. And in the 1918 flu uh, epidemic, uh, the the flu virus that was affecting everyone started out as really virulent and it was deadly. It was dangerous. It, It spread like wildfire. But scientists say as viruses begin to mutate, eventually they kind of mutate back towards an average where they're not as dangerous. Could we not see this COVID virus mutate towards something that's not as bad? Why are we seeing it mutate into something that's more transmissible and not the other way around? Yeah, there, there is no rule as to how viruses you know, evolve. Um, they don't necessarily evolve towards being less virulent. Um, you know, it really has to do with the details of the arms race that's really happening between viruses and hosts and the dynamics of those, that arms race, which can be quite variable. So, you know, a lot of the mutations that we're seeing in these variants are mutations that seem to help the virus grow better in the face of an immune response that's naturally occurring in people. And, and at least some of the mutations seem to allow the virus to, uh, you know, bind better to cells in the, in the body, allowing the virus to infect, uh, you know, and maybe produce more virus. So both are things that you would expect would help viruses outcompete each other, which is really what a lot of the competition is about. It's about a race between different viruses in the population in terms of fitness. So um, that evolution towards fitness, you know, doesn't necessarily mean the virus is going to become less or more virulent. Um, what we can say is that as, you know, more and more people develop immunity, then, you know, we're going to see a reduction in the virulence of the virus simply because people are able to mount an effective immune response against it. And that's what we're trying to do through vaccination as well. Well, and, and since you mentioned vaccination, I, I think that is part of the, I guess, the issue with these variants, right? That people, every time a new variant shows up, which now seems like almost every other day, the same question is always uh, brought up. Will the vaccines work against uh, this variant? Or will they work against that variant? These variants, though, at the end of the day, they're all SARS-CoV-2, right? I mean, they're the yes. same, the Correct. exact same uh, organism, same virus. So is there any reason to believe that the vaccines wouldn't be, at least against uh, death and or serious illness, effective against any of these variants? Yeah, so th- that's exactly right. So it, it's not a yes or no answer. Um, so we can see some erosion in some numbers, in, you know, not in terms of protection from life or death, but, uh, you know, in terms of what the vaccine does in, uh, in, in its ability to reduce the infection, right? But it's not really, you know, getting infected, e- even if you've been vaccinated, you know, isn't necessarily the big biggest problem. The biggest problem is, you know, you've been vaccinated, but you still get infected and you actually get really sick and end up in the ICU and maybe die. And all of our evidence so far really points to uh, the existing crop of vaccines working uh, in that more important way to protect people from serious illness and death. And that's the primary function of these vaccines. Secondarily, they also inhibit people getting infected 
And so we may see some erosion of that around the edges, but if we can vaccinate as many people as possible, you know, as quickly as possible, then just from a probability standpoint, it becomes much more difficult for the virus to spread, even if it's got some mutations that, you know, allow it to sort of nibble away at the margins, you know, with the vaccine. Dr. Kartik Chandran is a, viral, a virologist and microbiologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. It is supposed to be, you know, a, a three-week wait in between the first and second doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Uh, for Moderna, it's actually four weeks. But Walgreens, which was given out tens of thousands of vaccine doses, right, it has pretty much <laughs> tossed out that timeline and it has done its own thing and they got caught. Dr. Dima Quato is the pharmacist at the USC School of Pharmacy and a senior fellow at the USC Schaefer School. Doctor, is it bad if pharmacies, or anybody for that matter, don't follow the timeline for each of the different vaccines? Well, I think it doesn't follow the guidance from the CDC, uh, which recommends three weeks uh, between the initial dose and the second dose. And any lapse in the second dose could increase vulnerability. So, in that sense, there uh, you know, patients that have gotten the vaccine four weeks late, the second dose four weeks later, not three weeks, may be vulnerable during that one week time frame where they uh, should have gotten the dose. But but isn't there some guidance uh, that, for example, in an emergency situation, doesn't the CDC allow some flexibility, uh, for example, with the COVID, uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, which was supposed to be uh, three weeks, doesn't it allow it as, as long as like six weeks if there's an emergency situation? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's up to, I think it's up to 42 days or so, but that's an emergency, right? It's not, it shouldn't be the norm where everyone or mostly everyone is scheduled at four weeks and not three. Um, and I think the evidence is still kind of accumulating, but what we do know and, and what the CDC guidance is based on is that three weeks is the recommended time frame for the second dose for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and anything short of that may, may put people at risk during the time, during that lag time between their first and second dose beyond those three weeks. Is there a, a time limit on a delay in between getting the uh, second dose of, let's say, the, the Pfizer vaccine, where you wait too long and you basically have to start over again from scratch? I, I don't I don't know if there's um, specific guidelines around that uh, as of yet. Uh, all I all I do know is that the recommendations are at three weeks and up to six weeks. So what, Max. so what should somebody, I mean, somebody listening to this now who uh, got their Pfizer, their second shot uh, a week later than what the government says they should have gotten it three weeks, they got it at four from Walgreens. Uh, as a pharmacist, what would you recommend they do? I think they're, I mean, as long as they got their second dose, I think they should be okay. Um, you know, they might want to be extra vigilant but everyone should be masking up and social distancing with or without the vaccine. Right. Um, so I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a matter because there's so many unknowns in terms of specifically what the time frame is. What's known as three weeks is the optimal second dose period. Um, but I, I do think that people should be more kind of vigilant around how their body is, uh, you know, responding or being protected from, from COVID. But it should be okay. I mean, I don't think that they're necessarily at, 
going to get COVID because they got the second dose a week later, right? Um, I do think there's still some level of protection during that week, but uh, that week, the gap, you know, the week where they didn't get the vaccine when they should have, but it's not going to be as high as someone who got it on time, right? Uh, so, and I think that's the concern, but yeah. we don't know if that's very bad or not uh, bad at all. It could be fine. Yeah, you know, it all um, comes down to just continuing to follow the guidelines that are telling us keep wearing your mask even after you got the the vaccine shots because this thing is still going on and there are still things that we're learning about this, right? Just keep wearing your mask, keep social distancing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole point of just kind of being, uh, you know, adhering to the guidelines, even those that existed prior to the vaccine until we know more, um, especially with new variants coming out, right? So, you know, I, I think it's, it's less about, about this one week gap, more about like we all need to be really protective um, as since we don't know very much. Um, and, and, you know, ideally, I would recommend for all pharmacies and all providers of vaccine to follow the guidelines. Um, I think that should be, you know, the best approach. Um, and with that, I think there should be more oversight for sure, from the federal and state agencies that are partnering with uh, retail pharmacies to make sure that they're, you know, dosing at the recommended intervals and not before or after. All right. Thank you. Dr. D. Mikado, pharmacist at USC's School of Pharmacy and a senior fellow at the USC Schaefer School. When we come back, all the ugly things we are seeing during the pandemic, sparking parents to have conversations with their children about race. Plus, the Brazilian variant is so strong, it's sidelining some strapping men of the NHL. You're listening to uh, Coronavirus Daily on Odyssey. The uh, pandemic, the death of George Floyd, and hate crimes against Asian Americans, these are some of the topics of uncomfortable yet necessary conversations that parents are having across the country. But here is what's surprising. According to a new study, despite some sad and horrific things happening in our country, many parents appear to be rather optimistic about their children's future. KYW's Matt Leon spoke with Jennifer Nandu. She's the managing director of programming at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So what what were the overarching findings? It seems like people, despite a lot of things, are still relatively positive about the the world for their kids in the future? They are. And, um, you know, what I will say is it's a lot of things and parents are deeply hopeful and optimistic about their children's future. They believe that there is potential to achieve what is, is sometimes known as the American dream. But I also want to point out that they're also very clear-eyed about the fact that there are real challenges, and so that those challenges are um, often deeply structural. And I'd I'd point out that while all parents felt like discrimination, both at the individual level and at the structural level, could be a barrier to success for some children in the United States. So they actually saw that as formidable barrier to opportunity. So. There were many different things that came up also about how parents who are striving to do what's best for their children and in particular during the pandemic are really relying on a lot of creativity and resourcefulness to get the things that they need. So that was anything um, from hearing heartbreaking stories about really looking around their living rooms and, and selling off things to provide for their children 
but at the end of the day, really seeing seeing hope that their children's lives would be better than the ways in which they grew up. When it comes to concerns, and you kind of alluded to this, I mean, I would imagine structural racism has to be kind of right at the top at what won't allow perhaps their children to get the opportunities they deserve. Yeah, and it was across all racial and ethnic groups, but I want to be clear about what that means. So, you know, in the majority of all racial and ethnic groups, they said both individual and structural discrimination could be a potential inhibiting factor for their their children's well-being or for others. So in many ways, whether you were a white person or a black mom or dad, you actually saw that someone's child might have an unequal opportunity compared to yours because of what the, where they lived or what they looked like um, or their racial and ethnic background. What I think was profound was the levels at which we were seeing it, particularly among Asian American and African American communities. So Black parents, it was concerned for nine out of 10 of them for Asian American communities. It was concerned for seven out of eight, and they really did look at it at the structural level, which is that they had felt that they had been denied opportunities such as advancement in a job or different types of economic opportunities because of their their racial or ethnic background. Were there any other concerns, worries that kind of had that much of universal that was or basically everybody checked the box for well, what is what is important about this study is that in many ways, parents and caregivers, no matter their background, whether they are grandparents, biological parents or adoptive parents um, or aunts and uncles that are taking care of children, in many ways, see the pathway to success having the, the most common active ingredients, um, whether that's having healthy and safe schools or being able to grow up and live in a neighborhood where there's safe and affordable housing of course, having good jobs and income, so on and so forth. So there was lots of agreement about what it takes. And I think that's just realization that when you are a parent, you wake up often and the first thing on your mind is what is what can I do to do what's best for my child and what can I do to provide opportunity for the children that are in my life? And so, you know, what I would say is that was a universal really way of thinking. Um, and there was intensity and, and hope and even joy around being a parent or a caregiver of a child of many different ages. I think the other thing that came across inten- um, with intensity though, were the concerns about the experiences that their children would have, for instance, with mental health. So in general, you know, parents were concerned that um, mental health would be a challenge. And while it may have looked different, across different racial and ethnic groups. So for instance, for uh, white parents, they were more concerned about sort of their their children's experience with anxiety um, in academic settings. And for other, other parents, uh, like Asian American parents, it may have been more related to bullying. There was still sort of concern about some of the negative things that they would experience, including things like the mental health um, stressors that would be in children's lives that you know, didn't seem to used to be when we were growing up in quite the same way. The NHL's Vancouver Canucks have been sidelined by COVID-19 for over a week and counting. Because of the Brazilian strain of the virus, it has ripped through almost the entire team, as well as the coaching staff. And reports 
out of the team are that several players, and we're talking about young men, by the way, in you know pretty good physical shape, they have gotten really sick and are struggling to recover. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist and health economist at the University of Toronto, where he's founding director of the Center for Global Health Research. So let's talk about this Brazilian strain, which we keep hearing more and more about. Uh, is it that it is intrinsically more troublesome, or is it just that there are so many people in Canada who have yet to be either immunized and or infected that it's just sort of running rampant? Well, it's mostly uh, a, a bit of both. But what happens is viruses evolve. The, the single job of a virus is to reproduce. And as viruses change through a population, then they do uh, mutate. And then some become more infectious. Now, in theory, what should happen is the virus should become more infectious, but less lethal. Just that way it maximizes its number of customers. But what's peculiar about this P1 strain, the one you referred to as the Brazilian, is that it appears not only to infect more people and more easily, but it also causes more sickness. And it appears that if you've had earlier infection from um, another coronavirus uh, that uh, causes COVID, those don't protect as well against this variant as they do against, let's say, the UK variant. Um, so this is a real concern. And as you rightly pointed out, much of BC has been particularly affected. Uh, Whistler Ski Resort was shut down because of P1 variant detected mainly through from staff partying. It's not a surprise that even with the considerable efforts the NHL puts in with testing and bubbles and um, having people effectively in quarantine and playing, that this virus uh, still would be able to infect uh, players with all of those uh, things in place, just because it's really sticky. It's a very effective way of uh, effective virus at getting people infected. Now, why Canada is? Could Canada be doing something different? Could they be doing something better? Could are they making mistakes with this? Is why it's spreading? Well. Uh, on the whole, you can't fault the NHL um, because they've actually been a model of really trying to um, do lots of testing and um, keep players in a bubble. So uh, on the whole, of all the six sports teams, I think they've actually done uh, quite a good job. Now, that being said, um, these professional players are playing on ice and like factory workers, like meat factory workers, who've also been hit in hard numbers, that plays into the virus's hands because when it's a little bit colder, the virus just spreads longer in the air. And it's very likely that the players got uh, infected from uh, the active contact when they were uh, when they were on the ice or in the locker rooms. Um, what it means more generally for Canada is, yes, we haven't had a very good response in a few ways. One, is we haven't been testing for enough of the variants. The UK or Denmark, for example, are testing very large numbers of people. They're sequencing the infections and knowing which variants are spreading. Canada, we've not done as good a job of that. The US is somewhere in between. For vaccines, clearly Canada has been skating for the bronze medal. Um, the UK, Israel, uh, the U.S. to some extent are aspirants to win the gold medal because their vaccination ramp up has been far more impressive than in Canada. 
So, so you have no way of knowing then, or do you, uh, up there, whether or not if more people were vaccinated, would the vaccines be protective against this Brazilian uh, variant? The early evidence from several of the vaccines, um, not full-scale evidence, but early events suggest they would, that uh, they do have about enough of an immune response that they do protect against this variant. And remember, the other way of decreasing the spread of the variant is simply to have more immunized people uh, through vaccination. So there's where the the Canadian scale-up of vaccines has been just way too slow. Uh, we had a supply problem in part because, um, well, the U.S. manufacturers very clearly said, well, thank you, we'll look after Americans first. Uh, otherwise, either uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden was going to nationalize them. So if they're CEOs, they're saying, no, we know where our our uh, uh, our priorities are, and they made U.S. delivery a priority, but Canada got squeezed out as a result. That's been fixed largely, but our distribution and, well, call it the stick handling of how you deliver the virus is really substandard. We've just not had enough mobile vaccination clinics, not tried to reach out to making sure all of the elder folks are vaccinated. Uh, so now, and it, that's literally what it is. It's a race between how many people can get vaccinated and how quickly the variants grow. And not just the P1 variant, but the UK variant, um, the B1 variant, others are growing rapidly in the US, the Northeast of the US and in Canada and in parts of Europe. And um, unless they achieve the success like the UK has, we're close to uh, 60% of its population have been vaccinated, then um, the virus is going to uh, win this round. Eventually, we will beat the virus, but it means enduring another wave, uh, which I think is unnecessary. All right. Thank you, Dr. Pravat Jha, epidemiologist and health economist at the University of Toronto. You can find this Odyssey original podcast and so many others, plus music, news, and sports on the Odyssey app. That's A U D. ACY, and of course at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe to us today. And by the way, if you happen to already have, you know, the old radio.com app, you don't have to do anything. Just sit there and it will change as if by magic. If it hasn't already changed. It may have.